Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. I was an Atari fan from an early age. The Atari 2600 came out at just the right time for me, and I was lucky enough to get one, and I loved it. I also benefited from my friends quickly losing interest in their Ataris, and the ability to add their games to my collection at fairly reasonable prices made me even more of a fan. Because not only did I have an Atari 2600, but I had a decent collection of games and joysticks, all the things I would need to game forever. As time went on, unfortunately, the Atari 2600 became outdated. People got used to better graphics and deeper gameplay. There also happened to be what is called the Great Video Game Crash of 1983, when there was a realization that too much video game stuff was being made and not enough people were buying it. That didn't deter me from my Atari fandom. If anything, I doubled down. So when the next generation of gaming systems came along, I was not all that impressed. Not because the games weren't better, or I didn't want to play those games. I did, and eventually I would. But instead, it was my loyalty. But even loyalty can get fatigued, and that's what happened with Atari. As they continued to release lackluster system after lackluster system, and other systems rose up, I lost interest. I started to feel the same way about Atari as everyone else, that it wasn't the first brand you went to. And eventually I would switch to Sega as my preferred system. But then, as the 90s started to move along, there was an announcement from Atari about a new console, the Atari Jaguar. This was supposed to be a next-generation console, and I was very excited. I remember trying to read as much as I could about it, started saving money for it. I even switched from my plans to get a Sega Saturn to now wanting to get an Atari Jaguar. Sadly, the Atari Jaguar was disappointing upon release, and... I never got one. Not only did I not ever get one, but the disappointment in how poorly the Jaguar performed killed my enthusiasm for that generation of systems. And I wouldn't jump back in to gaming systems until the Dreamcast many years later. Fandom to one brand is a weird thing. And I often think how different you could turn out just because of a purchase that someone decided to make when you were a kid. It can bring you great joy when new products are released and you follow along with them and you really get into them. And of course, it can be tremendously disappointing when the brand you count on comes crashing down. On today's show, I'm going to talk to you about the last Atari console, the Atari Jaguar. We'll talk about the people behind the system, its development, its technical specs, its games, its decline, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
The Atari Jaguar is a video game system developed by the Atari Corporation, and it was released in North America in November of 1993. It was part of what they call the fifth generation of video game consoles, and I thought I should talk a little bit about the history of video game console generations. It's a term that's thrown about quite often, but it might not be clear to people. This generational console system naming sort of happened in retrospect. As more and more consoles started to come out, they started to group them around the technology and time that they were available. Mostly what you would see is someone would release a console that had technology and other people would try to copy it. And what you would get is this release based around about the same level of technology. What is considered the first generation of video game consoles started in 1972 and ended in 1980. Those would be the standalone systems that played games like Pong or Pong variants, you know, where it's baseball, but it's actually Pong, or it's hockey, but it's actually Pong. And that would start with something like the Odyssey, but then you would get releases from companies like Coleco with the Telstar and even Atari with Home Pong. The second generation would be led by Atari with its best-selling system, the Atari 2600, which came out in 1976. Other systems that would be lumped into this generation would be the ColecoVision, Intellivision, and Odyssey 2. Now, as you might have noticed, I said that the second generation starts in 1976. While the first generation is still being sold, there will be overlap in these generations because some people would still prefer the older systems and continue to buy them, and the companies would continue to make and support them. That's why the second generation runs all the way to 1992. In 1983, you had the third generation of video game consoles. That's when Nintendo explodes onto the scene with the Nintendo Entertainment System, which would sell almost 62 million units. You also had a release from Sega, the Sega Master System, and from Atari, the Atari 7800. The Atari 7800 only sold a million units and was already starting to falter at this point. The fourth generation was from 1987 all the way up to 2004. In this generation, you had the Super NES, the Sega Genesis, and the TurboGrafx-16. And then finally, we're brought up to where the Atari Jaguar comes into play. And this is the fifth generation of consoles. This would include the Sega Saturn, the Nintendo 64, and the PlayStation. Of course, there are other consoles. For example, in the first generation, there were hundreds of game console systems that were sold where it would be difficult to list them all. And of course, after the fifth generation, there's the sixth, seventh, eighth, and we're into the ninth generation of console systems with the PlayStation 5 and new Xbox. So let's take a look at the company that would be making the Atari Jaguar. Atari. This is not the same Atari that made the Atari 2600. Instead, this was an Atari that was being run by Jack Trammell. And Jack Trammell, if you know anything about computers, was the founder of Commodore. In 1984, Trammell bought the consumer division assets of Atari from Warner Brothers. And the company that he had founded, Trammell Technology Limited, was renamed the Atari Corporation. The reason Warner sold was that Atari was hemorrhaging money. Trammell went to work cutting things, shutting down branches, laying off people, and selling inventory. In fact, because Atari had such a large stock of inventory, Trammell was able to keep the company afloat 
by selling the remaining game console inventory while he worked on the next system that they wanted to build, the 16-bit computer, the Atari ST. In 1985, they would release the ST as well as a update to their 8-bit computer line with the Atari XE. They would create a new Atari 2600 in 1986, the Atari Junior, alongside the Atari 7800, but all of these were not big leaps into next-generation consoles. But the Atari ST proved to be a fairly successful system, but it still wasn't a blockbuster computer, and Atari was looking for what their future would be. And oddly enough, the future kind of started looking backwards toward video game consoles. Because in 1989, Atari released the Lynx, which was a handheld color graphics console. And it got pretty wide acclaim. Unfortunately, they weren't able to put out enough systems. And competing against the Game Boy from Nintendo was difficult because Nintendo's slim design and monochrome display allowed for better battery life, plus its wide availability, got it into more people's hands. So Atari showed that they still had some video game chops, and as their computer fortunes faded, they decided to jump back into the video game console market. This would be the fifth generation console, the Atari Jaguar. The Jaguar, though, grew out of another system that they were working on at the time, the Atari Panther, which would have been a fourth generation console something that would have competed with the Super NES and Sega Genesis. The Panther and the Jaguar were both being developed by a company called Flare Technology, which was a company formed by Martin Brennan and John Matheson. They had been working on a multi-system, and Atari got to see it, and persuaded them to close shop and start a new company, which would be called Flare 2, with Atari providing funding. It's there that they would start working on two systems, the 32-bit architecture Panther and a 64-bit system, which would eventually be called Jaguar. The work on the Jaguar actually progressed faster than was expected, and Atari and Flair realized that the future would be the 64-bit consoles, so they canceled the Panther and moved on to the more promising Jaguar. The people who would work at Flair and Flair 2 had actually started doing work for the Amstrad Computer Company, designing things like a fax machine and a hard disk controller for them. Now this company was in Britain, and eventually someone associated with the Amstrad got a job at Atari and transferred to Sunnyvale. It's at this point that the relationship with Flair started. Now where does the name Panther and Jaguar come from? Atari had this idea for a 32-bit system, but it didn't have a name. One of the people at Flair, Martin Brennan, had a wife who had just gotten a new car, a Panther Callista, which is a really fancy looking car. And it's a really great name. And so they gave it that internal name to use. Jaguar was just an iteration on this, something that Tremel had come up with because he heard that the Panther was named after a car. And so they named the Jaguar after a car. At least that's what Martin Brennan has said in interviews. It was Brennan who would push Atari to move in the direction of 3D graphics which are much more modern graphics, the things we see today. According to Brennan, At the time, I was seeing pictures in magazines where computers were rendering photorealistic 3D wire meshes, and I said, These are static images, but they only contain a very few number of polygons. We could take that, animate it, and you could produce a game that was a quantum leap away from the current games. So the scene was set. 
for a very next-generation console from a company that did not have a reputation as a next-generation console company. The Jaguar was an impressive machine for its time. It had five processors that resided in three chips. Two of those were proprietary, codenamed Tom and Jerry, and the third was a Motorola 68000 coprocessor. All graphic effects are software-based, and the GPU ran at 26.591 MHz and was rated at 26.591 millions of instructions per second, or MIPS. Development systems for the machine cost between $7,500 and $9,000 and ran either on IBM or Atari computers. Art development could be done on other machines. And technical overview. At the time, the idea of a 64-bit console was cutting edge, and Atari would lean heavily into the 64-bit system label. This is slightly more technical, but at the time, there was a lot of controversy in the press about the number of bits in the Atari Jaguar. That is because the Motorola 68000 CPU and Tom and Jerry coprocessors only execute 32-bit instruction sets. Now, Atari's thinking, because you have these two chips that are doing 32-bit in tandem, that adds up to 64 bits. There was an editorial in Electronic Gaming Monthly which said, if Sega did the math for the Sega Saturn the way the Atari did the math for the 64-bit Jaguar, the Sega Saturn would be a 112-bit monster of a machine. This was a clever way to criticize the technology, but the technology and, as you'll see, some of the capabilities will prove this was a 64-bit system, just with novel architecture. I don't know if you remember when a new console would come out, especially in the past. Something you would really look forward to is learning what peripherals would be available. It would be right up there next to what games would be available. And prior to the launch of the Jaguar, they did mention what peripherals would become available. Things like a CD-ROM add-on console and a modem for online gaming and a virtual reality headset were all on the table, unfortunately. Like so many promises that are out there in the gaming world, most of the very most innovative stuff was scrapped, and instead only a couple of peripherals and add-ons would be made available for the Jaguar. That would include an adapter for multiplayer, the CD console add-on, a redesigned controller, and a link cable for local area network gaming. I don't know if you've ever seen a Jaguar controller, but it had a lot of buttons on it, and if you ever hold it in your hands, it is very beefy. It almost feels like a system unto itself. The Jaguar CD would be released in 1995, and 12 games would be released for it. It's important because it would also later be embraced by the homebrew community, people who would make games later on after the system had been discontinued. Another important aspect of the CD is that it came with Virtual Light Machine, which was a audio visualizer that was developed by Jeff Minter, who we'll talk a little bit about later. And it was the successor to a system that I've always wanted, the Atari Video Music, which was released way back in 1976. And that means you play your music and on the TV, visualizations happen. Something we take for granted nowadays. But in the 90s, it was a kind of a big deal. In the 70s, it was mind-blowing. 
the Jaguar VR, while it never was released, did birth a pretty good game for the Atari Jaguar, and that was Missile Command 3D, which is a 3D rendered version of the 1980 game Missile Command. Frankly, the technology, and I'm not so sure even if the technology had been developed well, that it would have worked. This was a reactive bit of technology where they were worried about Nintendo's virtual reality console, the Virtual Boy, and wanted to have an answer for that. I talk about that in the episode Famous Nintendo Missteps, which I'll link to in the show notes. There was also an unofficial, unlicensed expansion released for the Atari Jaguar, the Cat Box, which was made by a company called ICD. It would be released in 1995. It's basically a add-on that added all sorts of connectors, things like audio jacks or composite and S-video ports for your television, things that made hooking up to your Jaguar more convenient. In a fun bit of what if, in 1998, an adapter for the Jaguar that would allow it to access web TV was revealed, and only one prototype of it is known to exist, but it gives you an idea of what if the Jaguar had caught on Would people have been browsing web TV through their Jaguar? Would internet through your Jaguar be a popular thing? It's a big what if. Now, hardware is important, but really the success of a console comes down to the games. Jaguar would eventually have 50 officially released titles for the system in North America, although there would be quite a few homebrew games that would be released later. Checking the list online, there are a couple of dozen homebrew games that have been released by individuals and publishers, with ones as recently as 2020 being released. The Jaguar's first game was the one that came with the system, Cybermorph, which was kind of an impressive 3D-looking polygonal game, although it wasn't much of a game and had flaws that attracted quite a lot of criticism. In fact, that was a big problem with the Jaguar when it first came out is that a lot of their games were criticized, including their next big title, which would be Trevor McFur in the Crescent Galaxy. A lot of these games were either too short, too simple, or the graphics just weren't up to snuff. They looked like things that should have been on 16-bit consoles. The first hit came courtesy of a, I would say, almost iconic video game maker now, Jeff Minter, who released Tempest 2000, which was an update to the classic Atari game, This game would go on to win awards and is very well received even now. This would open the door, and a couple other good games would follow, including Doom, Alien vs. Predator, and Wolfenstein 3D. Things on the game front were starting to look better for Atari, but there was a lot of problems. Before I get into those problems, I want to talk a little bit about Jeff Minter. Minter was born in 1962. He's a video game designer and programmer and the founder of Llamasoft who has created dozens of games during his career, starting in 1981 with games for the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. He is quite fond of arcade-style shoot-'em-ups, and these games are energetic and filled with light, often having psychedelic-style elements. If you're a Xbox 360 person, you might be familiar with his work from the music visualization program Neon. Games you're probably familiar with are Grid Runner, Tempest 2000, and Attack of the Mutant Camels. Atari was not releasing a lot of information about the Jaguar at first. Then they started to leak technical specifications to the press and said that they would debut their machine in 1993. This was really exciting news to gamers at the time. It would have been the most technically advanced machine available 
and Atari even sweetened the pot further by saying it would be priced at $100 to $150. They wouldn't be able to stick by that. When Atari finally announced the launch, the price tag had gone up a bit to $200 and said that it would be bundled with a controller and the Cybermorph cartridge. When it actually would hit store shelves, the price would go even higher, up to $250. This price going up turned off a lot of people. But even at that price, people were buying it. IBM was manufacturing the systems, and Atari announced that they would be marketing the Jaguar with a $3 million advertising budget, 20 third-party developers, and a telephone support line. The media, retailers, and even consumers, though, were skeptical. It had been a long time since Atari had been making waves in the video game console market. The official launch was on November 23, 1993, and the system was initially available only in the test markets of San Francisco and New York. That marketing budget used the phrase, do the math, to talk about how much better the Atari was to the 32- and 16-bit systems that were available at the time. During this test launch, Atari sold 20,000 units. Six months later, in early 94, they had a much wider release. Unfortunately, the Jaguar just wasn't catching on. They had sold about 20,000 units that first release. By the end of 1994, they had sold only approximately 100,000 units. In 95, Atari dropped the price of the Jaguar to $149, getting it to where they said it would be, trying to make it more competitive. They also started upping the advertising because they knew new systems were coming out. In 1995, Jaguar sales were below Atari's expectation, and Atari tried to invest in Jaguar game development, trying to bring other publishers in, but this had never been the focus of Atari. Tremel was a hardware person, and is quoted as being so, so there just wasn't a lot of experience. Although they were learning fast, it wouldn't come fast enough. It didn't help also that Atari was sort of a new company now at this point, with nothing really financing their ability to market the Jaguar at the level that, say, the Sony PlayStation could. And that's exactly what would happen. The PlayStation and the Sega Saturn would flood the market with marketing material and information, and it didn't take long before people started to completely forget that the Jaguar was even out there. Some of their games would win awards, and the press would be very kind to them. At the same time, people didn't like the controller. They thought the pack-in game, Cybermorph, was pretty weak, and the handful of other offerings just wasn't competing with what was being promised, even, by Saturn and PlayStation. The sort of last stand was going to be Christmas of 1994. Unfortunately, it was not only a weak holiday for Atari, but it just overall was a pretty weak one for video games. And people now knew in 94 that not only was the Sega Saturn happening, but there was going to be this new console from Sony, and who knows what that's going to be about. Plus, you could take your money and spend it on consoles that have already been proven, the Genesis and the Super Nintendo, which had a large selection of games. By 95's holiday season, with the PlayStation being available, it was obvious that the PlayStation was going to dominate not just Jaguar, but most systems. At this point, Atari stated that they only sold $3 million worth of Jaguar merchandise in the last quarter of 95 and announced that they would be discontinuing support of the Jaguar. In 1996, Atari released the last Jaguar title, Fight for Life, and almost all the remaining Atari employees were laid off. In April of 1996, 
Atari was merged with JTS Inc., which formed the JTS Corporation. This merger was finalized in July. After that, the bulk of the remaining Jaguar inventory that remained unsold would be moved to Tiger Software, which was a private liquidator. On March 13, 1998, JTS sold the Atari name and all of its properties to Hasbro Interactive. We would find out later that while Atari had been planning all these peripherals, they had also been working on the Jaguar 2 and even assembled some prototypes for it. It would have been backwards compatible with the Jaguar, and the processing power would have been two to three times that of the Sony PlayStation, with seven processors on three chips. Unfortunately, it never made it out of the prototype stage, so it's another big what-if. A novel use of the Jaguar system was the licensing of the Jaguar chipset for the use in arcade games. The system was nicknamed the Coin-Op Jaguar or Kojag. There would be some tech replacement and an optional hard drive. If you have been to an arcade at this time, you might have seen or played some of the games that ran on Kojag. Light gun games like Area 51 and Maximum Force are probably the most impressive. If you went to Chuck E. Cheese, or if you were a little kid at the time and played some kiddie ride games such as Space Guy or Skycopter 2, you might have handled a Jaguar because regular Jaguars were used as the controllers in several of these kid rides. So the technology was used outside of the console, and if you go to a retro arcade, you could still see Area 51 and Maximum Force in action today. So the Jaguar lives. The Jaguar would also have another legacy that started in 1997 when Imagine Systems purchased the Jaguar cartridge and console molds from JTS. These are the molds that make the plastic that houses the machine and the games, and they were going to be used for something called the Hot Rod Camera. In 2014, something more exciting with those molds happened when they were purchased from Imagine by Mike Kennedy, who was the owner of Retro Video Game Magazine who wanted to create a new console, the Retro VGS, which would later be called the Coleco Chameleon. When the mock-ups came out, it was a great-looking system, and people were very excited for it, but it's a very controversial project, and the project was terminated in 2016. When that failed, the molds were sold to Albert Yeruso, who was the founder of the Atari Age website, a great source for anything Atari. The Atari Jaguar failed for a few reasons. The timing on the system wasn't great with the PlayStation and Sega Saturn on the horizon, but also Atari just didn't have the skills needed to take advantage of what was really important moving forward, which was relationships with the people who make the video games. They needed to make it convenient to make the games, and they needed to support the making and marketing of those games, something they couldn't get up to speed fast enough on. The Atari Jaguar is an interesting system, and while some people might see it ending the Atari legacy on a sour note, I see it as Atari's last hurrah, an attempt to be relevant again. A system and brand that started in the 70s came close to making a comeback in the 90s, 
And while it's chunky controller and some of its games are mocked online, it did produce a lot of quality games and did it before Sony and before Sega and before Nintendo. Atari was first in some ways one more time. And if you're a fan of Atari like I was, that was pretty good to see again. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website. I'm at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like Peachy's work, you should follow him on Twitter. He's at twitter.com slash peachypixel8. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show via Patreon. We have a lot of great Patreon supporters and New Patreon content being posted all the time, including bonus tracks and member-only episodes. I'd like to thank the newest supporters to the show, Keith Kaplan, Jeffrey Vineyard, Keegan, Alan Howell, Byron McGaw, and Mark Wilson. Thanks to all of you for joining us over at Patreon. I encourage everyone to drop by and check out what I'm offering over there. If you can't use Patreon, please go to wherever you download or listen, and if you have the option to make a review and can give it a positive review, I would really appreciate it. It does help other people find the show. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Jaguar is a custom ship set primarily in tent ship. Chip, 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 chip. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.